Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Every other human, no matter how amazing they are, they will disappoint you. But not Jesus. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Well, people can be amazing, can't they? You realize this if you follow sports, right? Um, some like Lance Armstrong. Guy can win seven Tour de France's, or however the proper way to say that race is. You realize that people can be amazing when you look at some of the, the leaders of, in history, presidents like American President uh, Robert F. Kennedy. And um, we also, as Christians, realize that people can be amazing whenever we look at some Christian leaders. You know, uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a pastor named Bill Hybels who had a, a church that grew up to 25,000 people. Not 2,500, but 25,000 people. As kids, it's easy, you know, we, we make these people our heroes, don't we? And then as, uh, as we get older and we, we experience some things, we realize that people can also be shockingly disappointing and you might realize where I'm going if you you know know some of the people who I just talked about but um, I remember how shocking it was I think I was already in China by that time um, but to hear about that Lance Armstrong the guy that won the seven Tour de France's that he was cheating by taking illegal substances so that's why he was able to do that um, so they took away all his seven Tour de France's it was a shocking fall from glory for him or even to hear about, you know, the sex scandals of political leaders like President Kennedy, or even church leaders like Bill Hybels with the sexual abuse claims against him and him having to leave his church. Yeah, the longer you live, unfortunately, the less shocked you are to hear that some famous person has fallen into some scandalous sin. When I was younger, I would wait for a hero that I could admire but that wouldn't disappoint, you know, maybe when I was in my, you know, 20s at that point, um, after seeing some of my heroes fall. I would still love to see a hero that doesn't disappoint. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, like if you're, if you're an American, you're like, wow, what if we had a presidential candidate that we, <laughs> you know, we weren't voting because we don't like that one, so choosing this one, hoping for somebody. But at the same time, as we get older, part of us gives up hope that this person even exists. But today, there's good news for me and there's good news for you. When we study today, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 48, you are going to see that Jesus is actually the one that you've been waiting for. Every other human, no matter how amazing they are, they will disappoint you. But not Jesus. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And in our text, we're going to see five reasons that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. 
First, we're going to see King Jesus' plan in verses 11 to 27. And then we're going to see King Jesus' prophecies, prophecies in verses 28 to 40. It's prophecies. I'll give you a second to write that, that big word out if you're taking notes. And then third, we're going to see King Jesus' love in verses 41 and 44. Then we'll look at King Jesus' deity in verses 45 and 46. And finally, we'll look at King Jesus' work in the last two verses, 47 and 48. But before we open our text today, will you please bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for good news. Thank you for so much for good news in your word. Lord, we look at this world and we are so often disappointed. Lord, help us to see the good news in your word today. Unite your word with faith in our hearts. Lord, soften our hearts. Help us to see Jesus afresh. And pray for any who do not know Jesus, who may be among us today. Please, Lord, um, let them find Jesus today. Open their hearts. Save them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Let's consider his plan, the king's plan. So there's certain type of people that really want to know the plan. Um, one of the kids in our, I have four kids, one of our kids really wants to know the plan. What's the plan? So Christine, my wife, um, she has, with our kids, she has a Monday morning meeting before they start the week. And uh, one of our kids is taking notes. He's there. He's, he, do we get a meeting? Do we get a meeting? I want to know the plan. Um, and then, you know, we have one, another one of our kids could care less. Doesn't pay attention in the morning, Monday morning meeting because they don't need to know the plan. They're flexible. They're fine with um, either way. I, I don't need to know. I'm good. So um, how many of you are need to know the plan type people? Mm -hmm. I just want to know this. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. It's funny to see, okay, and then some, some, some marriages are split either way, which, which mine is. Um, but uh, how many of you are the flexible type that are okay not knowing the plan? <laughs> awesome. Um, cool. And then there are some that didn't raise their hand. I don't know what that means. Well, come tell me later. <laughs> cool. Um, there's some occasions where everybody needs to know the plan, and... Uh, yeah, it's true. It's sad, but it's true. For example, when mom leaves the house and the kids are by themselves, they're older kids. Um, <clears throat> and this kind of situation that we're looking at today, Jesus' situation with his disciples, this is that kind of situation where they all need to know the plan. And um, they all need to know the plan because the king is about to leave. So listen as I read, as I, um, read verses 11 to 17. It's uh, in your bulletin or John chapter 19. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19, if you brought your Bible. I'll read. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then to return, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him 
and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, sometimes when I read Jesus' parables, I get nervous. Um, and the reason is because when Jesus told us parables, part of the part of the reason for parables was um, so that some people wouldn't understand and some people would understand. And I'm often concerned that I'm going to be one of those people that doesn't understand Jesus' parable. And um, even when I was, was, you know, starting to look at this parable, preparing for the sermon, I was like, okay, now what? Like, who is what? What is this symbolizing? Um, but spending, if you continue to read the context, you know, above and below the parable, um, it really helps you to understand what what exactly things symbolize in the parable. So in this parable, um, if it's helpful to know that the nobleman is Jesus. The nobleman is Jesus. Remember, he's telling, he's telling the disciples a story because um, they think he's about to bring the kingdom of, of God um, immediately. So, He's telling the story about himself. So the nobleman's Jesus. The faraway country where Jesus will receive this, the kingdom is heaven. So Jesus is about to go to heaven to receive the kingdom. Jesus' departure to heaven is going to happen after he's crucified and raised from the dead three days later. So he's going into Jerusalem. He's not going to reign there immediately. He's going to depart. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be raised going to go go to heaven. Who are the servants in this story? They are Jesus' disciples. They are the church. And the citizens are the modern day, the, the, uh, the Israelites of Jesus' time, and everyone else who rejects Jesus as their king. And so the return of the nobleman, it's a picture of King Jesus' second coming and the judgment that Jesus will bring when he comes back, when he returns. And so, um, and so Jesus told the disciples this, 
this story as they're approaching Jesus, and he's telling his disciples this because they're, expect, they're expecting that Jesus has a different plan, right? They're expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem and reign as king. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, no, it's actually, I actually have a different plan for when I go into Jerusalem. Um, Jesus' plan was to never come and begin ruling in Jerusalem. At the end of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, after he's already been crucified and after he's risen from the dead, he tells his disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? So that's what prophets of old have been saying. Jesus must first suffer and, enter, and, and then enter into glory. Later on, Jesus explains it even more clearly to his disciples. Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus, is it, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Before King Jesus began his reign in Jerusalem, he must suffer. And why must Jesus suffer and die on the cross? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed to all nations. So um, do you think when Jesus told them this parable as they were entering into uh, Jerusalem that his di disciples understood the meaning? Um, did that, was Jesus able to calm, calm them down with their excitement? The kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. No, probably not. It doesn't appear that, that his disciples calmed down at hearing that story. But later on, um, after Jesus died and was uh, and raised from the dead, they were able to remember back. And they were able to remember that Jesus had told them that this was his plan all along, his plan of salvation. But um, thinking back to this parable, listening to Jesus' plan, it's, it's not just a plan, but he also he focuses, he zooms in on some important part of his plan, doesn't he? He zooms in on the servants, right? We got this basically a plan that involves his servants. The very servants, you know, um, some of these servants are walking with him into Jerusalem. So they need to know their role in the plan, don't they? And um, if you are a Christian, if you're considering becoming a Christian, then you also need to know your role in the plan of Jesus, King Jesus. So pay attention. What were the servants given? They were given minus. I mean, yeah, minus. Whatever that is, minus. We know what a mina is. A mina was the equivalent of three or four months' uh, work. It was wage. It was three or four months of work. You remember the parable of the talent back in Matthew, a similar parable. That a talent was a year's wage. So a mina, mina is only three or four months' wage. Um, but the important thing is not really how much a mina is worth. The important thing, the num number in, that, uh, in this parable, is there are 10 servants and 10 minas. The number 10, what does that mean? It's a rounded number. And so it shows that this parable does not just apply to Jesus' 12 disciples, but it applies to all of Jesus' disciples. And if you notice, um, you know, 10 servants, 10 minus, 
each mina gets one, I don't know how your math is, but each mina is going to get one, each servant's going to get one mina. And so if you're a Christian, this part of the parable, it applies specifically to you. You are included in the disciples of Christ in this plan. Jesus has given you a mina. And while King Jesus is gone, which he is, he hasn't returned yet, he wants you to use your mina to do business for the kingdom. Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to call you by name. And he's going to ask you how you did with the mina that he gave you to use. But how are you to engage in business of using the mina that Jesus has given you if you don't know what the mina is? Right? You're not going to do it very well, are you? You just got to guess. Uh, what am I supposed to do? What, what's the mina? What if you thought that the mina was referring to money? That's how in the in the parable of the talents might you know that's actually a parable about about stewardship of money or talents. Um, if you believed that the mina was referring to money, you might think, okay, I got to get busy, you know, multiplying the money that the Lord has given me, um, so that when He comes back, I can show Him that I multiplied as money, and He can say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." But what if the business of the Lord is talking about something else, this minus, is talking about something else, and you wasted all that time multiplying this money when he wanted you to be doing something else? So what is it? What's, what's the mina? What is the business? First, notice that the Lord gave each servant the same amount. He gives us all the same thing. It's all, everybody gets a mina. So it's not like the parable in the book of Matthew. We all get the same thing. Second, if you read the rest of the book of Luke, you'll notice that the themes and the wording from this part of the parable, it matches up to the wording of a part of Luke chapter 8. And what is Luke chapter 8 talking about? It's talking about the Word of God. Okay. Listen, um, so in our parable, two of the servants have been very fruitful They've multiplied that mina, I mean, 10 times. That's some impressive numbers, you know. And so um, Jesus also, in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, he, he gives a parable where he's talking about the Word of God and how the Word of God multiplies. In chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 15, he says, he's actually talking about soil. And when the Word of God, like a seed, falls on good soil... It doesn't multiply 10 times, it multiplies a hundredfold. And Jesus interprets this for his disciples. He says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And listen to what Jesus says in the next verse, in, six, in verse 16. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts the lamp under a bed but he puts the lamp on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So did you hear that? It's the same wording from our parable, isn't it? For the one who has, more will be given. For the one who does not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. 
King Jesus has a plan. And you are part of his plan if you're a Christian. He wants you to engage in business with his word. He wants you to bear fruit with his word until he returns. So what does that look like? It looks like evangelism. King Jesus has given you your mina. He's given you the gospel. He's given every Christian equally the gospel. He's given us this good news. And now he's given you and he's given you the job to go share the gospel. You might think, I don't know how to share the gospel. And if that's you, then today, ask another church member how they share the gospel. Even if you do know how to share the gospel, I still dare you at lunch today to ask a church member how they share the gospel. You'll probably be very encouraged to hear different ways that the different church members share the gospel with other people. I always, I've benefited for the last couple of years of hearing how, uh, how Adam shares the gospel with the people in his life. He was sharing, he was sharing an example of that with me a couple of weeks ago. And um, it was encouraging and challenging. So, so actively ask, ask a church member, how, how do they share the gospel? And real quick, I want to circle back on what I said about making money. Working a job and sharing the gospel are obviously not mutually exclusive. We don't have to quit our job so that we can share the gospel. Often, because of your job, you are able to be around a group of people who do not have access to the gospel outside of through you. So through your work, you're, you, I can't gain access to these people, but you can. And so if you weren't at that job, you wouldn't have an opportunity to share the gospel with these people who might not hear from other people. If you weren't at your job, you would not have an opportunity to live out the truth of the gospel to these people so that they could see it. Okay, so Jesus has a wonderful plan for salvation for the nations. Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for. Next reason that we know that Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for is because of his prophecies, the prophecies of King Jesus. And by his prophecies, I don't mean the ones that he, he made, prophecies that he made. I'm talking about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. King Jesus is the Davidic king who was prophesied from long ago. So listen as I read verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that was called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, on, on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus and the multitude of his disciples, they've now progressed 17 miles and the equivalent of kilometers of however long 17 miles is. They've progressed 17 miles from Jericho to the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. So from the place where we just read when he told that story to now, they're outside of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And Jesus' disciples, if they listened to Jesus' parable, they, were, they had a few hours to think about that parable while they were on the road. And now they're on the Mount of Olives, um, which is a small mountain right next to so right next to the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Mount Zion's here. Mount Olives is right here. So they can look down on it. And first, Jesus sends his two disciples to get a colt, which has never been ridden by anyone. So that's a, it symbolizes purity. It means that we're taking, we're taking this colt that no one ever has ridden, and we're giving it to somebody special, to let somebody special like a king ride on it. So it was a ritualistic act of honor that was reserved only for special people like kings. It means the rider is very special. Then we see Jesus. We tell, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen, doesn't he? He says they'll see a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And amazingly, they get into the village and it's exactly like Jesus said it is. And the point here is, once again, that everything is happening right now according to Jesus' plan. I'm sorry, according to God's plan. So Jesus is given a very short-term prophecy, but Jesus, when he comes down the mountain, he's going to, give a, he's going to fulfill very long-term, very ancient prophecies. The disciples throw their coats on the colt and on the road, and when they throw their coats on the, on the, on the colt and on the road, that's something that we see in First Kings. That's, that's what they did when they, when they honored a new king. They all threw their coats underneath him so that the king could walk on, on, uh, on their coats. And so we see them doing that again here for Jesus. And so it's a symbol in Hebrew culture of honoring a new king. And then we get this image of Jesus riding the colt down towards Jerusalem. And this image is a very important image in Jewish history, Jewish culture. It's an image that fulfills a messianic prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before, had prophesied about the king who would come to save Jerusalem. He said this in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And as the long prophesied King Jesus is riding down towards the city, the multitude of his disciples, they celebrate the coming of King Jesus. They're just going to cry it out. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
blessed is the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is what they would say when they were coming to their festival. And so his disciples, they change. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the last time we see Jesus in the book of Luke announced as king, um, it was back when he was entering into Jericho. And in Jericho, it was a blind man sitting by the road, and he heard that Jesus uh, was approaching. And the blind man cries out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Um, and so David, if you don't know, he was, he was the greatest king of Israel. It was promised to David that his offspring would rule Israel forever. And so here this blind man is crying out that Jesus is king. Son of David, have mercy on me. And what happened to the blind man when he cried that out? He got rebuked. Um, the, those around him rebuked him. And I always thought, until recently, I don't, I don't remember how, how Phil preached it, <laughs> uh, but I always thought they rebuked the blind man because he was bothering Jesus. But here we see, this, we see it happen again. Now it's not a blind man being rebuked by all the, the seeing people, but it's, it's disciples who, it's Jesus' disciples who are crying out that Jesus is king. And once again, the, now the Pharisees are wanting to rebuke Jesus' disciples for crying out that Jesus is king. Um, what do the Pharisees say? They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So does he do it? Did he consider it? Was like, hmm. No, Jesus tells his disciples, does he tell he does he does not by no means Jesus rebukes those Pharisees doesn't he he says I could rebuke them right okay but if I did they were silent these very stones would cry out he rebuked them the reason that Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for is because Jesus is the Davidic Savior King who was prophesied from long ago prophesied of old. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies in the Hebrew Bible? Well, I mean, it matters because no one else has done it. No one else could come near to fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus has fulfilled. Scholars differ on how many prophecies, messianic prophecies, Jesus fulfilled, but the minimum number is 200. And so Jesus' prophecies are one of the reasons showing that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. The third reason that Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for is because of his love. No one loves like Jesus. And this is an example. Listen to, um, well, let me just set it up a little bit. Jesus knew that he was the king of the Israelites, obviously. He knew that his own people would not only reject him, but they would have him executed on a cross. And now look how Jesus responds when he gets a full view of the city that is about to reject him and crucify him. Verse 41, it says, um, when he drew near the city, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And I guess to, to read that properly, you know, how Jesus said it, it, I would have to be weeping, right? Jesus knows that God will judge those in Jerusalem. That he's going to judge Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem, for their execution of his beloved son. And it happened. In 70 AD, roughly 35 years after Jesus said these words, the Roman army would come. The Roman army came, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they killed everyone, and most, they killed many people in it, not leaving one stone upon another. And so here, Jesus, knowing that that's going to happen, he weeps for them. But normal humans don't love their enemies. Normal humans, they hate their enemies. Normal humans take revenge. I was telling a friend the other day, about how sometimes our house, you know, it, comes, it becomes a vengeful place. I don't know if it's just our house, um, but it becomes a vengeful place. Mainly, uh, mainly me and Christine um, will become impatient with one another and uh, we'll find that we're irritable. And when I'm irritable, one of the things I can't stand the most is when somebody is irritated at me. Oh, so um, we get angry with each other and we get irritable. And what is that? That's a cycle, right? Uh, um, you might have experienced that in your house. You might have experienced that in your workplace. It's a cycle of irritability. It's a cycle of I'm angry at you and you're angry at me. We take vengeance on each other. What we need is Jesus. Jesus is different. Jesus is the one who loves his enemies. Jesus, you know, we get irritable with sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves us first before we love him. When you find yourself in that cycle of irritation, cry out to Jesus. Ask Jesus to help you to help you love those who offend you as he loved you and as he is loving you right now. So because of Jesus' love, we know that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. The fourth reason that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for is his deity. His deity, what deity means his uh, that it means his, his divinity, that Jesus is God. Jesus has been on that long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. I don't think I've talked about that yet. So in the book of Luke, starting in chapter 9, all the way to the ch chapter 19, you see Luke presents, he, he shows Jesus and his disciples on this long journey all the way to Jerusalem. Um, and so... That's a big part of the book of Luke, is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And um, it's here in our text that Jesus finally arrives. You know, uh, we talked about Jesus riding the colt into Jerusalem, 
And that's often referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, But in the book of Luke, I don't think it would be accurate to call it his triumphal entry because it's only here that Jesus enters. It's here that Jesus arrives somewhere. And then where does he arrive? Where does Jesus choose to go? Look in verse 45 and 46. We'll see where Jesus finally arrives and enters into his triumphal entry. Verse 45 says, And he entered into the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so when Jesus comes and enters the temple, Jesus fulfills another prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it reads like this. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So Jesus, the Lord who they have been waiting upon, he comes into the temple like a refiner's fire. And he rightly calls the temple my house. Because Jesus is the God whom the temple was built to worship. Jesus is the second member of the triune Godhead. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one. God is three in one. And Jesus is the Son. Why does it matter that Jesus is God? Why does that matter? Well, you know, if you know God, if you know God, you know that God cannot disappoint. We talked about people disappointing earlier, but if you know God, you know that God cannot disappoint. God is perfectly good. God is without sin. He is wise. He's pure. He's gracious. He's kind. God is truthful. He's righteous, and he's just. Unlike mortal men, Jesus cannot disappoint you by sinning. But that's not all. God is also completely powerful. He is infinite in power and in knowledge. And so unlike mortal men, Jesus cannot disappoint you with weakness. King Jesus is worthy of your trust. As a good king, you can trust him to provide for all your needs. He will not disappoint you. We've made it to our fifth and final reason that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And that is, um, it's his work. 
What is Jesus' work? What's Jesus' work? Um, Jesus came to preach the gospel, and he came to die for the sins of mankind. Verse 47, our last two verses, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So what did Jesus do after he cleansed the temple? He began teaching. Before we consider teaching, let's look at his, the other part of his work, his death. It says also that the chief priests and the scribes and the people, the principal men of the people, they were seeking to destroy Jesus. You believe that? They wanted to destroy him. Like literally, not like, not like in a game of you know, soccer or football. They wanted to literally destroy him. And so some Bibles, they translate that word assassinate. They wanted to assassinate Jesus. Um, but what's the problem? They can't touch Jesus. They want to assassinate Jesus, but they can't touch him. He's untouchable. Verse 48 says, They did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. They thought of a lot of ideas, and nothing was working. Um, these verses, they, are going, they foreshadow the fact that ultimately, as we'll see a couple chapters later in Luke, that these leaders, they are going to successfully kill Jesus. They're going to get what they want. They're going to arrest him at night, and they're going to coerce the Roman authorities into ordering Jesus' execution on a cross. Um, but what verse 48 shows us is that Jesus, if Jesus doesn't allow it, then nothing could kill him, right? Jesus, in the middle of the temple, I mean, he's, he's in their domain, and they can't touch him. So these, Jesus, uh, these Jewish leaders, they didn't just kill Jesus. Jesus willingly laid his life down. Laying his life down was King Jesus' work. This is the work he came to do. It's the very thing. It's why he came to Jerusalem. It's why he didn't like avoid Jerusalem. He came to do his work. And you may be new to the Bible. If you're new to the Bible today, it's your first time to hear teaching from the Bible, you might be wondering, why did Jesus come to lay down his life? What does it mean that Jesus died? I could not figure that out as, as, as a young man. I was, I was so confused about that. Well, the Bible, it affirms and explains a certain truth about human nature, which is why Jesus needed to die. You know, Chinese philosophy from ancient times has had, had a statement about human nature that goes, um, and like, if you're Chinese, you know that statement. Like, um, and if you're not, then you probably don't. But if you are, you, you definitely know that. <laughs> uh, what it means is all people are born good. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, so um, 
And so that statement in Chinese culture and philosophy, it observes that there's goodness in, in every person. Later on, I found out there was another statement um, in Chinese philosophy that goes, Ren ban e. um, And I was delighted when I found that out. Um, this means that all people are born evil. Um, and so the philosopher who said this, he observed that there's evil and wickedness in all people. And so typically, I guess, people think you got to choose which one is it. Is it Renji Chu Xing Ban Shan or Renji Chu Xing Ban E? Which one is it? Um, do you know which one the Bible agrees with? Which one is it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up so you don't get to have a lively debate at, at, at lunchtime. The Bible says, yes, they're both true. Or, people are good, are both good and evil at the same time. In fact, we are better than anyone even realizes. We have no idea how good people are. And at the same time, we're also more evil than anyone realizes it. The reason we're so good is that God created us in his own image. God created us so that we could display his goodness in this world. That's what we are. We're created to display his goodness wherever we go in this world. That's why you can see such good in people. That's what he made us for. But the reason that we're so bad is because the first human, the first human, Adam, he sinned against God. And the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, sin entered the whole human race. It infected, like a disease, not a disease, but like a disease, it infected every human. And therefore, all people are both good and bad. But the big, big, big problem for us is that God is good. God is only good. And so because God is only good, God has to punish evil, right? If God didn't punish evil, if he didn't punish sin, then God wouldn't be good. Because a judge who does not punish sin is not a good judge. The judge is just letting sinners, criminals, just get away. That's not what a judge does. A judge has to uphold the law, uphold righteousness. And to make matters worse, the penalty for sin is not just a whipping. It's not just a fine. The penalty of sin, before man ever sinned in the beginning, the penalty of sin has always been death. And so that's bad news for us who are evil, who are sinners. God must judge us, and the penalty for our sin is death. Very bad news. But the good news is that God sent his eternal son, Jesus, to come and die the death that we deserved so that he can save us from that death. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. 
And so that's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because Jesus died for you, you can turn from trusting in your idols. You can turn in trusting in false gods. You can turn from trusting in this world, trusting in yourself, and you can turn to trust in Jesus and in his death for you, in your salvation, and you can be reconciled to God. And so I plead for you today to do that, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. So that's, that's the first part of the work of Jesus is that he came to die. The second part of the work of Jesus is that he came to teach. And uh, when I was studying this passage this last week, looking at how Jesus is so exalted, right? We see Jesus, the exalted Davidic king, God who has the plan nobody else knows, fulfilling all these prophecies. He comes into Jerusalem, and then what does he do? He teaches. He, he teaches every day in the temple. And I was like, how weird is that? He like, the king is just sitting there being a teacher. Why? Why? <laughs> Like, why, why is it, why, why, I don't understand that. We don't really see that in the Old Testament. Why is he doing it now? And so I, in bed for the, you know, when I was laying in bed trying to go to sleep, I was like, all right, let's figure this out. Um, <clears throat> but why does Jesus teach? The reason Jesus teaches, well, we see him, we see him teach in the temple, and then he teaches, and then he teaches, he teaches every day. Um, the reason King Jesus teaches is because this is how the gospel saves people. It's through teaching. That's how Jesus' death saves people. It's through teaching. Paul, the apostle in the book of Romans, he explains it like this. Paul said to the Romans, he said, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that's why Jesus, King Jesus taught. And that's why King Jesus taught his disciples to teach. Because the world needs to hear the gospel in order to be saved. So we already gave our, our challenge to evangelism, right? Jesus' challenge to evangelism from the, from the, from the parable earlier Jesus, we see Jesus, he's using his mina, isn't he? He's using it well on earth, and he's multiplied the kingdom through his preaching of the gospel. But it's not easy to preach the gospel. There's forces working against us when we preach the gospel. Obviously, Satan's working against us. The world doesn't want us preaching the gospel. And our own, the, the deceitful desires of our flesh, they don't want us preaching the gospel, our old self. Um, and so that's why even in the book of Ephesians, you see Paul's, the apostle Paul, his prayer request was, pray for me that my mouth will be open to boldly proclaim the gospel. So Paul's like, I'm scared. Please pray for me. I might be scared that I'll, that I'll be bold and I'll preach the gospel. That's Paul. What about us? We definitely need prayer. The, 
you know, gospel, the, sharing the gospel can be scary for us. So how can you find support and uh, strength in your evangelism? One of the best ways to find support in your sharing the gospel is by gathering on Sundays. I'm not sure if you realize, we often don't realize how much gospel you get on Sunday when you gather with the church. How much gospel are you getting? You ever thought about that? You may not have noticed, but our prayers every Sunday, every Sunday our prayers, they follow a gospel rhythm. Our prayers are following the, the, um, the, like the shape of the gospel. The first prayer that we pray on a Sunday when we gather, it's the prayer of praise. And so a prayer of praise, it's focusing on God, lifting Him up. Often during the week, our hearts stray away from God, and our hearts latch, our hearts latch onto the world. Our hearts are consumed with, oh, what is that person thinking about me? Or, you know, what do I want to do in a little bit? You know, what's that fun thing I want to do? So our hearts, they... They, they go away from God and they, they latch onto this world. But when we come on Sunday mornings, we hear a prayer of praise that exalts God and it lifts our eyes back onto God. We say, oh yeah, God, right? That's the prayer of praise. That's the first part of the gospel, God. And then what do we do right after that? We pray a prayer of confession. We didn't today, but usually we pray a prayer of confession. It'll probably come during communion. Um, typically, after the prayer of praise, we pray a prayer of confession. And so um, we are often blind to our sin. That's one of, our, that's one of the, um, the symptoms of spiritual sickness is we're, we're blind to our sickness. And so um, when we come and we pray a prayer of confession, a lead and a prayer of confession reminds us, oh, yeah, I do sin. Oh, yeah, I have been sinning all week long. Oh, that's, that's a hard reminder, but it's true. You know, and so we confess these sins together before God. And so we've thought about God. We've thought about our sin. And then right after the prayer of confession ends, we have words of comfort. And so the words of comfort is a scripture about Jesus. And it's about how when we come to Jesus with our sin, he forgives us. And we trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And so we've, what have we just got? We've just gotten the gospel every single Sunday. We're getting that gospel rhythm when we pray. And we need it so bad. And that's not all. That's not all we get on Sundays when we gather. Um, this next part won't be as long. Um, besides corporate prayer, the songs we sing. When we, I don't know if you ever think about the words that we're singing, but if you think about it, there's a feast of gospel in the songs that we're singing. And we're singing these songs to each other. We're heralding these truths about who God is to each other while we make melody to the Lord in our hearts. And that's not all. There's obviously a sermon where we hear the gospel and preaching. And then finally, we get to communion. What is communion? Communion is a visual picture of the gospel. When we take communion, we get to see images of the gospel. The bread, it, it's a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. This blood is a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And then when the bread and the wine, they come to you. 
You don't go and go get salvation from God. God's salvation has come to you. God has loved you first. And then, um, yeah, there's more. There's more richness in the gospel, but that's what we're getting when we come. And so all of that, it helps us in our evangelism. So before we turn and we take communion, we enjoy this reminder of the gospel. Will you, will you bow your heads and will you pray with me? Father, um, Lord, we are in awe of Jesus. We did not realize that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. We so often forget. We so often need your grace and your mercy to remind us of this truth. Lord, thank you for Luke chapter 19. Lord, thank you for, um, for prayers at church. Thank you for the songs that you've given us to sing to each other. Thank you for, um, thank you for communion. And um, thank you for sharing your plan with us, your servants. Lord, we thank you most of all for Jesus, for giving us Jesus. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.